Hey there, Fact or Fiction fans. Before I begin, I need to apologize for my unintended absence the past two weeks. I had some unexpected technical difficulties, but I am back with another fiblet today, and I'm on schedule for next week's regular Fact or Fiction episode. I'm excited also to announce the July winner of the Bell Toffee Contest. Congratulations, Sharon Young of Dunnell in Florida. A bag of Bell Toffee is on its way to you. If other listeners would like to win a bag of Bell Toffee themselves, please go to the Fact or Fiction Podcast Facebook page or factorfictionpodcast.com. You'll find a link to the August contest at either place. Now, we're all cut up. Let's get on with the show. Here we go. Welcome to Fiblet number three. This is another mini-sode where I read four news stories, three of which I found in newspapers of the past. One is my own creative writing, and it's your job to listen carefully to distinguish if what I say is fact or fiction. So, alrighty, they play. Alrighty, folks, before I read this week's mini-sode, two weeks ago, I promised to come clean about fiblet number two. As a brief recap, choice number one was the story of Miss Jane Bruno's murder by her nephew, her sister-in-law, and the sister-in-law's young husband. And this actually appeared in the April 22nd, 1899 edition of the Herald and Review out of Decatur, Illinois. Choice number two, the story of the Albright brothers. It appeared in Benton, Missouri's The Newsboy on January 23rd, 1897. Choice number three, about the woman who murdered her daughter out of jealousy over the girl's supposed interest in her stepfather. This one appeared on June 20th, 1895 in the Palmyra Spectator. And choice number four, that was actually my creation. The story of the senseless murder of a man driving his newly purchased automobile. I made that up. And if you guessed that this was a fiction, congratulations, you won. Today's stories involve a disgruntled saloon keeper, an overly protective father, two brothers whose sibling rivalry got out of hand, and an ex-politician who was injured in a burglary. As always, I've invented one of these stories, so listen carefully to see if you can guess the fiction. I'll come clean again in two weeks on fiblet number four, but if you can't wait that long, you'll find the answers on factorfictionpodcast.com or on the Factor Fiction Podcast Facebook page. All right, here are today's fiblet stories. Choice number one. Pistol Practice. Yesterday afternoon, another shooting scrape occurred at 511 North 6th Street, known as Howard Saloon, which may prove fatal in its results. It seems that John W. Howard, who was the supposed proprietor of the saloon, disposed of his interest about a month hence to Colonel P.S. Burroughs, who resides at 817 Franklin Avenue, and has for some time been a traveling agent for Mr. Jacob S. Merrill, the well-known wholesale druggist. Since the time Colonel Burroughs obtained a controlling interest in the saloon mentioned, he has been on a journey in southwestern Missouri. On his return a few days since, he appeared dissatisfied with the business transactions during his absence, and it is presumed expressed his opinions somewhat strongly on several occasions. Yesterday afternoon he went to the saloon, when an unpleasant argument again ensued between himself and Mr. Howard, an argument that ended by two pistol shots. The barkeeper was at the time on the sidewalk outside, where he had followed some customers who had just left the saloon. 
He states that while outside, he heard an altercation between Burroughs and Howard, and immediately afterwards, the pistol shot spoken of. He entered the saloon and found Colonel Burroughs in a room behind the bar, apparently in a dying condition. Dr. Kennard and the notary public, Mr. McGinnis, whose offices were nearby, were immediately sent for. Dr. Kennard found that one of the shots had not penetrated the abdomen, having evidently struck something which resisted its force and produced only a bruise upon the skin. The other ball had entered the abdomen a few inches above the navel on the left side, and its whereabouts could not be traced. The wounded man was taken to his residence at 817 Franklin Avenue, and Dr. John T. Hodgins was sent for, who examined Colonel Burroughs, but could find no trace of the ball. It had evidently penetrated the abdominal cavity, but whether it had injured the small intestines, the doctor could not ascertain. The patient was in a very prostrate condition and evidently suffering great pain. When asked as to the probability of the wound proving fatal, Dr. Hodgins stated that he could not give any opinion, not being able to ascertain the whereabouts of the ball. The shot having penetrated beyond the muscular coating of the abdomen, the result must necessarily be dangerous. Mr. Howard was visited in his cell at the Chestnut Street station last night and gave the following version of the affair. He states that a few weeks since, Colonel Burroughs became interested in his saloon by advancing him money to run it. During Burroughs' absence, he had run it squarely, but on his return, the colonel had charged him, Howard, with having acted dishonestly during the absence, and several times during the last few days had called him a thief. Yesterday afternoon, he came into the saloon and again commenced abusing him, charging him with purloining money. Howard states that he stood this for some time, cautioning Burroughs to desist, and that he passed through the back door behind the bar where Burroughs again abused him and struck him two blows in the face, that they then grappled and fell, and that Burroughs, being a much more powerful man of the two, he, Howard, was getting the worst of it, and that while on the floor, he drew his revolver and shot at him twice, and that what he did was entirely in self-defense. It is but justice to state that the statement made by Burroughs to the notary public also, the story given by the barkeeper and a gentleman named Barry, who was with the barkeeper on the sidewalk, entirely contradicts this. Colonel Burroughs' statement is to the effect that while sitting in a chair in the room behind the saloon, while in an altercation that was going on between him and Howard, the latter entered the room and deliberately shot him without any provocation or personal violence on his part. Choice number two. Final witness in trial, the 66-year-old physician charged with murder. Dr. Rentenauer appeared today before a jury of his peers on charges of murdering his daughter-in-law. The doctor was the final witness in an unusual trial surrounding a most unusual death of the pretty young cellist, Mrs. Tara Rentenauer, nay Johnson, whose body he reportedly found in the basement operating room of the Rentenauer residence on March 24th. The feeble 66-year-old doctor stated he was prepared to plead his innocence in spite of the fact that he has recently been diagnosed as suffering from a dangerous heart ailment. I must explain what happened to prove my innocence, he declared to his attorneys. I am the only one who can do this. My physical ability has no bearing on the matter. In the early morning hours before the trial was to convene, a crowd gathered outside the courtroom, eager to hear the doctor's description of events surrounding the tragic death of the lovely raven-haired girl, who met her untimely demise at the age of only 22. The Johnson family, mourning the death of their beloved daughter and sister, is a highly regarded and prominent one, and many of those attending court knew the victim well. 
In accusing Dr. Rittenauer of the bizarre slaying, Assistant State's Attorney Albert S. Sloan suggested two motives, greed and fatherly indulgence. He claims the doctor killed Tara for insurance money and to free his favorite son, the handsome 25-year-old Jonas Rittenauer Jr., from a cumbersome marriage to a neurotic and infirm wife so that he might find a more suitable lady. Dr. Rittenauer, who was widowed, was attended at trial by his daughter Bertha and her husband George Hampton, but Jonas Jr. has not been seen since he was released from jail after being freed on a charge of being an accessory before the fact of murder. Prior to Dr. Rittenauer's testimony, a number of reputable physicians and patients have testified as to his esteemed character and his love and affection for Tara. Other doctors also testified that Tara was in a delicate state of health and prone to dramatics. The elderly Dr. Rittenauer apparently struggled to hold back tears as he told his story that Tara had visited him at his office days before her death. The girl exclaimed that Jonas Jr. had told her he was going west and leaving her behind in St. Louis. She was afraid she'd lost her husband's love and said, If Jonas leaves me, I'll do something desperate and he will regret his actions. It's been on my mind for weeks. After relating his dismay upon hearing such an exclamation, the elderly doctor paused to gather his emotions before continuing on with the most crucial part of his testimony, the matter of the young beauty's death. Dr. Rentenauer's story about his discovery of the body had undergone several changes since authorities first found her corpse. Initially, he claimed the young lady had been shot in the back by a burglar entering his surgery in search of opium. Later, he told authorities that she shot herself in his office after he told her she was suffering from imagined stomach complaints. On the stand, he said he had discovered her nude body in his operating table and recognized she'd taken an overdose of chloroform to end her life. Overcome by a desire to protect her reputation, he admitted he himself had administered the shot to her back to make it appear a burglar had been responsible. There were tears and strong exclamations from the courtroom's assemblage during his testimony, which was at times barely audible because of his weakened state and the emotional nature of his statements. Dr. Rittenauer faced cross-examination asking him about his own conflicting accounts of the girl's death, as well as questions about the $2,000 life insurance policy Jonas Jr. collected upon Tara's demise. He claimed no knowledge of the life insurance policy or his son's current whereabouts. The jury is currently deliberating its verdict. Choice number three. They fought to kill. Frank J. Healy is at the city hospital suffering from 10 stab wounds. His brother, George Healy, is a prisoner at the 7th District Police Station, slightly wounded. In their home at 3225 Chestnut Street lies their mother, Mrs. Kate Healy, past 75 years, gray-haired and feeble. She is confined to her bed, and the doctors say her condition is critical. This is all due to a fight between the two brothers who are crazed because of an evening passed in beer drinking. Frank Healy is 35 years old and until a few months ago was a secretary at the Bambrick Bates Construction Company. George is two years his junior and until a few months ago had employment as a collector. Neither has worked since the winter began. Sunday, George Green, a neighbor, called on the Healy's. They sat in the kitchen and drank bucket after bucket of beer. They were intoxicated when Green left at 6.30 o'clock in the evening, but this did not stop them from drinking more. The brothers began arguing on trivial questions in a maudlin fashion. Harsh words came. The aged mother of the two young men, fearing the result of a quarrel when their minds were befuddled with liquor, besought them to cease. She stepped between them when it seemed that blows must come, and for a moment peace was restored. The brothers agreed to cease their, qu their quarrel and more beer was proposed. 
Mrs. Healy besought them to drink no more, but her advice was not heeded. The beer was bought and drunk. Another argument arose. Frank accused George of owing him money. There was a denial and a countercharge. The men became more angry than ever. They squared themselves, and a fight seemed imminent. Their mother once more cast her own body, bent with age, between her sons. She was pushed aside, and the brothers began the duel that was intended to be death to one or both. Frank seized an earthen pitcher and hurled it at his brother. It struck him on the head and cut several gashes. George drew a knife and attacked his brother with the ferocity of a tiger. The mother, thinking both of her sons would surely be killed and realizing that she was powerless to stop them, ran out into the bitter cold night without her wraps and called for help. She ran two blocks before she saw anyone. Then a policeman was called and the mother conducted him to her unhappy home. Frank was prostrate on the floor and blood was flowing from a dozen wounds. He was unconscious and weak from loss of blood. Dr. Barnes was summoned, and on his recommendation, Frank was sent to the city hospital. George returned to the house half an hour later. Special policemen's Badger and Ford placed him under arrest and locked him up at the 7th District Police Station. Dr. Niedert says Frank Healy will recover. None of the wounds struck a vital part. Because of her advanced age, the shock, the exposure, and fright, it is thought the mother of the men may not survive. Choice number four. Shot by a burglar. Alton, Illinois' ex-Senator Gillum was shot by a burglar in his residence in Upper Alton last night. The residence of Mr. Gillum is situated about two blocks east of the walls of Shirtliff College and at the edge of the town of Upper Alton. About one o'clock this morning, the gentleman was awakened, and as he raised himself, he saw a man in the act of leaving his bedroom. He quickly jumped from his bed and ran towards the intruder, at the same time commanding him to halt. Mr. Gillum had almost reached the man at the door leading into the hall when the burglar stepped across the hall and under the stairway that leads from the front door to the rooms on the upper floor. As he gained this point of vantage, he called twice to Mr. Gillum to stand back, to which no attention was paid. But instead, he started toward the burglar, who drew a twenty-eight caliber revolver and fired. But the bullet went wide of its mark and passed through a door at the end of the hallway and buried itself in the earth outside. Nothing daunted, Mr. Gillum rushed at his assailant, who fired point-blank at him. The bullet entered the left breast just below the nipple and almost on a line with the apex of the heart. The wounded man staggered into his bedroom and sank on a couch. The other occupants of the house, who were in the upper story, were aroused by this time and came to the assistance of the injured man. Meanwhile, the burglar had made good his escape, taking with him the pair of pants he had removed from the bedpost, and which contained some valuable papers and memoranda, together with $25 in money. Dr. Yerkes was summoned, and when he arrived, Mr. Gillum's pulse was very feeble and prompt action had to be taken. Mrs. Gillum says that all of yesterday she had strange foreboding that some evil would soon cloud her happiness. The condition of Mr. Gillum is exceedingly precarious. The wound has not bled externally, and this is regarded as very unfavorable. At 6 o'clock this evening, he was lying in a semi-comatose condition, apparently resting easy and bearing his misfortune bravely. The doctors think there are even chances for recovery. Short time after the shooting, Constable Loeb started in pursuit, but the footprints led to the Chicago and Alton tracks, which, being stone-belasted, would show no imprints. Hence, the trail was lost. The footprints show that the man wore a number seven button shoe, and Mr. Gillum describes the man as about five feet, ten inches tall, black mustache, slouch hat, and sack coat. Telegrams were sent everywhere, and Governor Pfeiffer was requested by Mayor McPike of this city to offer a reward for the apprehension of the dastard, which he will in all probability do. 
Two men were arrested this afternoon near Wood River on suspicion, and as soon as Mr. Gillum is sufficiently able, they will be brought to him for identification. The burglar entered by the front parlor window, prying the catch out of position and raising the frame. He then passed into the hall and into Mr. Gillum's sleeping apartment, where he took the pants from off the bedpost, with the result heretofore stated. In the parlor was a solid silver service, which was untouched. Mr. Gillum has occupied many positions of honor and trust, and at present is one of the vice presidents of the State Board of Agriculture. So, alrighty, folks, that concludes fiblet number three. I'm going to do a quick recap, and you can listen carefully to decide which one's the fiction. Choice number one, Pistol Practice, is the story of the saloon owner, John Howard, shooting his business partner, Colonel Burroughs, after Burroughs complained about possible mismanagement of the saloon. Howard claimed self-defense, but all the other witnesses said he shot the colonel in cold blood. Choice number two, Final Witness in Trial, is the sensational story of the elderly doctor who gave testimony in his own own defense in the murder trial, where he was accused of killing his daughter-in-law to protect his son. Choice number three, they fought to kill. This is the tale of the two drunken brothers who attempted to murder one another, forcing their elderly mother to endanger her own life by traveling in the cold night to seek help from authorities. And choice number four, shot by a burglar. It's a story about a former Illinois congressman who interrupted a burglar attempting to steal his pants. As always with Fiblets, I will come clean in two weeks, but if you can't wait that long, the answer is posted on factorfictionpodcast.com and on the Factor Fiction Podcast Facebook page. Please visit those sites and let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another traditional Factor Fiction episode next week, a story that illustrates that it's more difficult than you think to know if something is fact or a fiction. Goodbye. Bye.